If your world's feeling a bit too routine lately, stay with us and we'll take you to some places you've probably never been. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, I talk with author Patricia Schultz, who's identified a thousand places we should each see in our lifetime. She reveals a few of her favorites. The sound of the gongs, the smell of the incense, the sound of the children laughing and the old people who come and exchange news, it's lovely. Yvonne Wakefield shares what it's like to teach art to women in Kuwait. It's like the diamond in the rough. It's retained a lot of its cultural heritage, and the architecture there is, you know, out of this world. And discover a part of Germany free of lederhosen and other Bavarian cliches, but with its own unique treats. Northern Germany is flat, lots of agriculture, think seafaring, very good bicycling, lakes. We're going to some new places. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're not going to the usual places today on Travel with Rick Steves. In a bit, we'll look into the highlights of overlooked northern Germany. And an American describes the unexpected challenges she faced and overcame while teaching art to women in the traditional Arabic culture of Kuwait. Patricia Schultz has recently revised her bestseller, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. She joins us now to update our global bucket lists and tell us about some of her latest favorites around the world. Patricia, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. I am so fascinated by paging through your book and to think that the world is your beat and you've really um, just done so much to help people sort through all the superlatives and know how to um, get the most out of our travel dreams. And I just want to take a few minutes with you and kind of run around the world and, and talk about what are some highlights. For me, these days, there's a lot of mega cities and they can be overwhelming, but they can also be just thrilling. For you, what's the best urban jungle? Oh, I have to say New York City because I live here and I know it inside out. But, you know, we're only half kidding when we say it's the center of the cosmos. I just love New York. But also, I love Rio de Janeiro and Hong Kong. I love big cities. And when you've survived the urban jungle, you want a little break on the beach. Uh, You've seen beaches all over the world. What's a beach that should be on our radar when we're putting our travel dreams into reality? Oh, Anguilla in the Caribbean, I think, has just, just stunning beaches with those kind of gin-clear waters that you hear about. And also Bermuda, those wonderful pink sand beaches. They're really pink. They really are. For me, some of the beauties of travel are just being silent, finding yourself in a, in a spot where it's just you in, in a vast expanse. Take me to a silent place that you like. I think that America is blessed with our endowment of national parks, and they are massive. Some of them are the size of, you know, entire countries. Glacier National Park in Montana, for me, was um, a dream. Uh, Yosemite in the wintertime is very beautiful. So is Yellowstone in the wintertime, actually, with all of that thermal heating coming up through the snow. Very silent, very quiet. The parks are empty. Even in the rush time during the high season, the you know, while the kids are out of school, you just need to go off the mm. main asphalt road. You have the park to yourself. Even if you're not a spiritual person, a lot of sacred places really touch a thoughtful traveler. What's a sacred place that has touched you? I think that, of course, this is something you bring with you. So what we were saying before about finding a quiet moment and being alone with your thoughts and the beauty of nature can be just about anywhere on the globe. That said, one of the most important Buddhist destinations in Southeast Asia is in uh, Yangon, formerly called Rangoon, the capital of Myanmar, Burma. And it's the Shwedagon Pavilion and the sound of the gongs, the smell of the incense, the people who come, all generations, three generations who come and leave flowers, who stop and pray. There, It's an enormous stupa and there are dozens and dozens of small temples that surround it. Mm. And the sound of the children laughing mm. and the old people who come and exchange news, it's lovely. I was just in Istanbul enjoying the cacophony of calls to prayer from every minaret at the same time Love all over that. the place. And I just, it, to me, it's so it evocative. Me it gives me goosebumps. Yes. Uh, okay, so I got Istanbul. Tell me one of your favorite cacophonies <laughs> of sound. You win. <laughs> no, go for another one. What's another cacophony that just stays with you? Oh, you know, we just came back from Edinburgh. And we missed the um, tattoo, the military tattoo that takes place in the castle every August. It's part of the um, 
Oh, the, part of the, the, the lone bagpiper is the just yes. the climax, and there's a spotlight on him, and it's after this great yes. event, and he's standing on the ramparts of the castle, and at that yes. moment, everybody is Scottish. And crying, I'm That's sure. Right. Then he's preceded by these incredible troops that come from all over the world. I always thought they were just Scottish troops, but no, they come from South Africa and from India. They come from all over the world, and... The sound and the drums, the percussion and the pipes, and there are thousands of them sometimes on the esplanade at one time. But then it does culminate, as you said, with mm. that lone piper. And it also evokes, you know, the, the empire upon which the sun never sets, as even in the 21st century they have an association and they come together this way. I'm talking with Patricia Schultz, and she's the author of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. It's out in a brand new second edition, and we're talking about some favorite places as Patricia has spent... How many, how many days out of the year are you on the road, uh, on average, Patricia? Would you say you're six months out of the year you're on the road? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow, nice. For sure. What's the best place to kiss or the most romantic place uh, that we might not think about in our travels? Um, I guess wherever you find yourself with your loved one. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> because okay, let's something... say you're with your loved one. Where would you want to go for a special time? What's the romantic Well, I'm sorry, but hands down, Paris is just unbeatable. You know, I know it's a stock answer, and there's a lot of rolling of the eyes, but there's no, there's just no romantic city in the world like it. And I find the entire country of Italy just exudes and oozes yeah. romance. I, I would agree with Rome you. Rome gave us the word. Yeah. Sometimes you find yourself in a spot, and you just can't believe you're on the planet Earth. What's the most bizarre place you've ever been? Oh, have you ever been to Papua New Guinea? I was going to say Papua New Guinea. I was in, oh, uh, what's the name of that town God. where all the all the ganging up of all the tribes when they dance well, together? Well, they don't gang up, but they do come, they come together, together from yeah. the highlands. Oh, it's yeah. called the Mount Hagen Sing Sing. Yes. And we went in August because it was the 50th anniversary. And Rick, when I tell you that this is, if I live to be a thousand years old, I will never, ever experience anything like it. And all of these stern people painted red and blue and yellow with the birds of paradise feathers and the things through their nose, they were some of the nicest, most oh. welcoming people. I just couldn't believe the um, juxtaposition of this image that they, you know, that because they were killing their, their tribal right. neighbors right up until probably a day before we got there. And then you have the sweetness of character, and they love to have their photo taken, and not once— did you ever see an outstretched hand or anyone asking for money? And they welcome you. They love. They're very proud of what they I do in their love. heritage. And yeah, they love to have you visit. Papua New Guinea. You know, in many ways, um, it's kind of the Stone Age colliding with the 21st yeah. century because you will see that occasional cell phone and you will see the Nike sneakers and all of that. But at times um, during celebration and the Sing Sing mm. that we talked about, these different Sing Sings, there are many of them throughout the country, mm. you do see how they've lived for centuries and centuries and centuries. Oh, I was walking out in the, just in the fields between these two villages in, in Papua New Guinea and came upon some guy who was out hunting, and he had three different spears. And, you know, I was a tourist, and I wanted to take a photograph of him. And he had the three different spears, and he knew enough English to point to the three spears, and one at a time he said, fish, bird man. It was like that was what the spears were for. And then we did a little gimmicky thing where he ran around me after me like he was a cannibal and that was his <laughs> dinner. Uh, but Papua New Guinea, fun people, bizarre, different world. I'm talking with Patricia Schultz and you write this famous book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, and most of us are healthy and eager travelers, but you know, I've often wondered... There are people who are going to die. They've, they've got a terminal illness. They're frail. They know they've just got a few months to live. Have you been um, connected with people like that through this book? And, and do they actually find inspiration to go somewhere to finish off their life? Uh, yeah, you know, when we were in Machu Picchu for my 50th, because for my birthday, I always like to give myself the gift of a trip, because how cool is that? And um, I know that Machu Picchu is not terribly easy. I mean, you fly into Cusco at 11,000 feet, and then you train down into Machu Picchu at 9,000 or so. And there's altitude. You know, first of all, you even have to get there. It takes a while to get there. But once you're there, it can be, you know, a challenge. And I was very cocky. I didn't get altitude sickness pills because I thought, hey, I've been to Denver. And I was sitting in the lobby of our wonderful hotel with an oxygen mask 
clamped to my face, kind of gasping for air because I was having a magnitude migraine that I've never had before. And I met this wonderful woman from New Jersey. Um, her name was Edith, and she was 90 years old. It was her first time out of America, and she had chosen as her first trip. She decided it was time to start seeing the world because she was very aware that from now on her days were numbered. Um, and she said that her great-granddaughter had given her a book. She said, perhaps you've heard of it. It's called 1,000 Places to See Before You Die. And she embraced that. And I said, oh, that's me. She embraced the idea. She loved the fact that somebody had done all of this research and had given her between two covers all of the great places to see. And she, like I, was getting some of the more difficult ones out of the way because she wasn't all that sure how many she would get to see. So um, I guess people fall into two camps, the kind that, you know, finally um, are looking at their, you know, last moments who just want to spend it at home in the comfort in their family in an environment that's nurturing to them, or else they want to strike out and really, you know, go out with a blast and go out trying and seeing, you know, everything they didn't manage to see um, when they were younger. Ideally, there's that middle-of-the-road approach where you've seen so much and you just want to keep on going. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Patricia Schultz, author of Thousand Places to See Before You Die, second edition. Patricia, you write that uh, you have an everlasting itch for things remote, taken from a Moby Dick quote. <laughs> How do you scratch that itch? Well, you know, as a young girl, I scratched that itch playing the game of risk on our living room floor. And there are places called Zanzibar and Siam and uh, Madagascar that just caught me. They, you know, they stayed with me all these decades later. And to this day, something that comes to mind is a recent trip through Jordan, which is kind of a safe oasis in that whole area of the world that's very um, calm, really. I found it quite peaceful and welcoming and very safe to travelers. We went to Wadi Rum, which is south of Petra. Petra was just overflowing with busloads of tourists, and it's still special and it's still gorgeous. But in Wadi Rum, which is a valley, a desert valley on the way down to Aqaba, you can get lost in no time, and you are in this empty, vast area that is millennia old, and the colors are magnificent. And the only people you'll run into is the occasional Bedouin herder. It was very magical. It was mystical. I love to just sit and be with my thoughts, and I love to be immersed in areas that I know are older than time. Patricia Schultz, author of Thousand Places to See Before You Die. Thanks for the inspiration. Thank you, Rick. We'll dig into family roots and experience another side of the German character in northern Germany in just a bit. Next, we'll meet an American artist from the chilly Northwest who was invited to teach painting at a women's school in Kuwait. She tells us how she adapted to working with traditional Arabic culture, censorship, and the blistering heat of the desert, and why she stayed for six years. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's one thing to visit cultures that are very different from our own. It's another entirely to live and work there. Yvonne Wakefield describes the challenges of teaching art to burqa-clad women in Kuwait in her book, Suitcase Filled with Nails. And she joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about it. Yvonne, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for inviting me. 
What led you to get a job teaching at a women's college in Kuwait? Well, I was happily ensconced as an elementary art specialist in SQUIM. In SQUIM, Washington. SQUIM, Washington. State, yeah. I had health insurance, I had security, I had tenure, but I also had a PhD that wasn't being actualized. So I was looking around for opportunities and on a fluke responded to an advertisement in one of my scholarly journals. Said help wanted. It said teaching position in Kuwait. University professor, artist, PhD. And I had both. All right. And how long did he spend in Kuwait? I spent six years from 2004 to 2010. Tumultuous years. They were simmering down because it was right after the Iraqi freedom pullout in 2003. So now we had liberated Kuwait, and I'm sure their government was all excited about the relationship between uh, them and the United States to be strong against Iraq. You as an American in Kuwait, uh, were people thankful for that? What was the, how did that affect your, your experience there, that we had liberated them from Saddam Hussein? You didn't want to bring it up. Because in some cases, people were embarrassed to talk about it. In other cases, people really liked to talk about it. So it wasn't like you were part of the liberating army and thank you so much and God bless America? People never really brought that up. Now, you lived in Kuwait. If somebody has a, from the Western world takes a job in a place like Kuwait, how do they live? Is it cloistered? It just depends on who you're hired by and who, who you work for. I worked for, actually, the Kuwaiti government, and I lived on the Kuwaiti campus, the university housing. Were you kept separate from the society in general? or did No, you, you could go, just, go out and mingle. So you were just a, a I neighbor. I had a car. Yeah, I had yeah. a car. But then if you worked for, for instance, let's say if you worked for one of the major oil companies, you lived out on a compound. Okay. And were there security concerns for an, a Westerner living in Kuwait? I thought so when I first went there um, because I had never been to the Middle East and any of the media that I'd seen about the Middle East, people were getting beheaded. And contract workers are being abducted. And I was a contract worker. Oil workers getting kneecapped. Yeah. Yeah. But Um, nobody was making any example of you. You felt comfortable walking in the streets. I did. I did. What would you do to go out and eat and have entertainment? What's it like? It's like everything there is here except booze. You can't buy. Alcohol is um, from my experience, From my experience in Iran, booze was illegal. But in people's homes behind their, their big front door... Almost anything goes. Was there booze in the society, but just privately? Oh, yes. And every, okay, so every newspaper article, there'd be somebody who got busted. Really? From, so, a, from a shipment of maybe 5,000 bottles of Johnny Walker. So whiskey or, or gin would be like marijuana or cocaine here? No, not necessarily. In fact, I've heard it said that Johnny Walker Red was the national drink. But technically illegal? Technically, yes, yes. How did he deal with the climate? You know, when I first got off the airplane and the driver picked me up, he took me out into the corridor and showed me 48 Celsius. And I, it, the heat was just a shock. What's 48 Celsius in Fahrenheit? I think it's about 120 or something. 120. 120. So that, was it always a dry heat? Uh, yeah, it was. It Thank was. goodness. And I actually got used to it. I enjoyed it. So you can get used to the heat above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I did, and I right. ran in it. And you biked in it. I biked in, in it, too. It was like biking in the heat in the desert. Um, after April, you had to be out by 10 in the morning. So that was my experience in, in very hot areas, too, is you get up early and you have some activity, take a your old siesta thing, and then when the sun goes down, everybody comes out and relaxes again. Well, I never took a siesta, but... But yeah. go inside. I go inside and, and do my office work or my artwork. So you, you build your schedule around the heat a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you, the season, too. Now, you had a, a phrase, hydrate or die. Mm-hmm. In your book, what is that? When we'd be out desert biking, um, we had to drink a liter and a half every hour. Or? Or, You'd dehydrate. And the interesting thing is if you drank three liters of water within two hours, you still didn't need to urinate because you were just cooking. That's amazing. I've been in that situation. All this water's going in. Nothing's coming out. Mm -hmm. And you had to wear, like, white shirts or you would actually be baked. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're getting a little insight into living in Kuwait. Uh, We're talking with Yvonne Wakefield, and Yvonne taught there for six years. Her book is Suitcase Filled with Nails, Lessons Learned from Teaching Art in Kuwait. Tell us about the title of the book, Suitcase Filled with Nails. Originally, the the working title was Mafum Banat, which is Arabic for Do You Understand Women? And Towards the end of the book, I used the sentence, suitcase filled with nails. And I thought, oh, that's the title. So the title, without giving away the book, is actually a positive metaphor about the good things that happened to me in Kuwait, the good things I came away with. 
How so? I was given so much in Kuwait, especially in the last few days I was there, that I actually had to get some other luggage to carry things back. Okay. So overwhelmed by the hospitality. Yes. That's what you hear a lot about, well, so many cultures. If you compliment somebody about something, they give it to you. And that's interesting because one of my students came in and I complimented her on her abaya. It had some really beautiful embroidery. So the next day she comes in, she says, what's your favorite color? And I said, purple. So two weeks later, she comes in with this big box. She and had, the abaya is the robe they wear to cover up modestly. Yes, the black, the black right. abaya. And she'd had a custom-made one for me with Touching. purple embroidery, yeah. You were teaching women art. What are the challenges of teaching? I mean, you can teach art here in the United States, and it's like no holds barred. What were the uh, constraints you had to live within as a free-spirited art teacher teaching young women in Kuwait? First of all, I had my Western concepts of how I was trained and how I taught art, and I knew I couldn't utilize most of those. For instance, Kuwait, the Muslim society, is an anaconic society. Meaning no images? No images. No no images of people or no images of... No images of of people, and it just depends on how far you take your interpretation of the Quran. Some people won't even draw flowers. Okay, but certainly no people. No people. Anaconic. But it's contradictory because some artists there draw a lot of people. So it's just how you interpret the Quran. But in my case, I did, as an icebreaker, I had them do gesture drawings where you stand up and you draw really fast which is how I was trained with nudes. So with my students, I used my students, and they were just in the abayas, so it became more like a fabric study. What an image, having a nude model in a room, air-conditioned room in Kuwait with a bunch of women in their abayas covered up in black. There was no nude woman. I know it. I mean, you can't even paint an image of a person, right. much less have a nude model and study the body. What do you do to substitute the use of the human figure if you're well, an and this, this is So some students who would not work with the human form... I would give them a wooden mannequin, and then they would place it on their desk in a certain position. So, for instance, I had one student who took a painting, drawing, and photography class with me. When I used human subjects, students as the Mm -hmm. models, um, she used the mannequin. Oh, so that was a technicality. She could use a mannequin, but not a real person. That's how she interpret her interpretation of the religion. So there was a loose interpretation among each of these individuals that were your students. Yes, was the government looking over your shoulder? I would think, you know, an American art teacher coming into town, they're going to keep an eye on you. I never felt that, but I did come into contact with some Kuwaiti high school art teachers who were told to quit teaching portraiture. I've always been struck by how you can have some very stylish young people in the Muslim world covered up in one of these black robes, these uh, abayas. What's your sense of how fashion-conscious, style-conscious, how women are courting men by trying to look fetching when they have to cover their bodies up with this abaya? You do it two ways. You do it with your handbag, and you do it with your stilettos. Really? Mm-hmm. Your shoes and your handbag? That's the only thing that's visible. Not your hands or your face or your eyes? Oh, also eyes are made up. Eyes are a big deal, aren't yes. they? Yes. And handbags. So a guy can be attracted to a woman for her stiletto heels, meaning she's, she's hot if she's got stiletto heels. Or she comes from a very wealthy family. Wow. Hot in Kuwait, 140 degrees, stiletto heels. And you asked about how, if they're fashion concerts, I think in some cases it goes off the Richter scale because they are very fashion conscious and they have a lot of disposable income. So they like to dress and they're beautiful. So under their, at home, in private, they can be more relaxed and more stylish? Or where do they show off? Where are they free to spread their their, uh, stylistic wings? Um, In their family. In their their family. Now, how, how sheltered were, were these young people? I mean, their government would like them to be very sheltered. Were they pretty uh, connected with the Internet? and Do they know what's going on in the West? I think the Kuwaitis, the Kuwaiti women I worked with were some of the most progressive and um, responsible women that I ever worked with. And they had every opportunity. They have more opportunities than many of us have. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Yvonne Wakefield about her experience as a teacher in Kuwait. Her book is called Suitcase Filled with Nails. Yvonne, when you think about art in Kuwait, is the free spirit of an artist celebrated in Kuwait, or is art just supposed to be religious propaganda and pro-status quo? During my time there, I saw it really change. Um, There are some fantastic artists that I came up against, some fantastic art shows I saw, but 
you're always aware of the censorship, so you create imagery that you know is not going to be offensive, mm-hmm. is not going to rile feathers. And I did, actually I had three major exhibits while I was there. One I did not show depicted the women in Abaya, and that's because I didn't want anybody misinterpreting that, and I didn't want to end up in jail. In your book, Yvonne, you said that um, like Bali is to Indonesia, Kuwait is unique to the Middle East. What did you mean by that? It's almost it's like the diamond in the rough. It's retained a lot of its cultural heritage, but it's also incredibly progressive, and the architecture there is, you know, out of this world. Now, you've got a two-part society, don't you? You have the uh, rich elites, and then you've got Bedouin culture. Yes. And then you've got immigrant labor. It's fascinating to me that you've got Bedouins running around in camels and living in tents. You've got incredibly rich people that will jet off to Dubai to go do their shopping and live in these fantasy worlds. And then you've got all sorts of people from India or Pakistan doing the hard labor. Is that kind of what it is, or how would you lay it out? Yeah, it is. There's about a million Kuwaitis and about 2.5 expats. Meaning laborers that come in? Laborers, yes. And I would be, I would have been included in one of those, but I'd be up on the upper echelon. Yeah, but most laborers are going to just be people doing scut work for scut pay from India. India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, right. Philippines. Does the pre-oil heritage survive? See, I'd like to go to Kuwait and see glimpses of the civilization before they became filthy rich with oil. Is there any of that left, or is it all a big shopping mall? You can see it in some of the old souks, and you can see it if you go to some of the older houses. And actually, some part of Kuwait is starting to get re-preserved back to that. But I did do, um, I had a research grant called Holding On to the Past, where I documented what Kuwaitis did with their hands on a daily basis for survival pre-oil. Mm-hmm. And it was a fascinating um, and was there an appetite for that among uh, the leading people in, in the society to learn about their heritage, or was that an embarrassment for them? Yeah, that's a good question because um, some of the younger people, I had the exhibit at the Modern Art Museum, and some of the younger people didn't want to identify with that, but the older ones really identified with it because they yeah. were there. I mean, 60 years ago, they, they were, it. They were still nobility. washing their clothes in the sea. Did you ever get a sense of new rich where they didn't quite know how to handle it? There were people that I've met that were new rich, and they had no goals but to shop. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about living and working in Kuwait. Our guest, Yvonne Wakefield, worked for six years as an art teacher in Kuwait, teaching young women. Her book is called Suitcase Filled with Nails, Lessons Learned from Teaching Art in Kuwait. Yvonne, I can't help but think that this male-dominated world is, is just filled with a bunch of misogynists. What is it like to be a woman in Kuwait, and what drives these men? Uh, tribalism, family, culture. Is misogyny too hard a word? I use it several times in my book. Right. Uh, I was just learning about it. I didn't believe it existed. I believed that truth would always prevail. And you can have a romantic forgiveness about this sort of thing, but when you get right in the midst of it, it really it's a power trip. Women are downtrodden. Men dominate. Women have to play by the men's rules. Or do the women call the shots in the domestic scene? You know, it varies in every family. It varies in every tribal situation they have there. But a lot of the women I worked with learned how to get around it, how to circumvent it, or let it go over their shoulders. So and, maybe and that's a, a survival mechanism. It it's is. just choose your battles. You're not going to win this one, but at least we can get some nice handbags. And you, you learn to live with it. Now, what about segregation between men and women? It still is a segregated society, and classes even on the main, like the main university campus or other schools, if you have male and female, classrooms will be divided, like with a glass divider. Do you think, you know, we spent a lot of blood and a lot of treasure freeing Kuwait. As an American living in Kuwait for six years after that war, do you ever get a sense that they're not the society we thought we were protecting? That's a really kaleidoscope kind of question. Um, It's kind of um, complicated because they're not free. We came to their aid in the name of freedom. It's not democracy, or is it? Well, the political system is a hereditary, I don't want to say monarchy. They say it's emirat based on one family, um, the al-Sabah. Which goes back to almost feudal times or ancient, ancient times. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Take me to the mall. In Kuwait. Which one? 
Take me to the biggest, splashiest one. Okay, the biggest one when I left was called the Avenues, and it was, it was just an incredible thing. And people basically live there. Um, I Climate mean, controlled? Everything. Teenagers dressing provocatively? Uh, not so much. Not so much. No? Okay, because here it's fun to see how the teen, the girls kind of dress ways their moms wouldn't like them to. Well, sometimes there is that because they're out of the family eye. Yeah. They can. What would they do? Oh, maybe just trick up their abaya. You can trick up an abaya. Yeah. I've seen that happen. Or trick up your hijab. Pull your scarf back a little bit. Or just bling it, put bling on it. Show some hair. I'm not sure about that. In Iran, showing some hair is really quite racy. Uh, Fashion conscious elites shopping at big name brand stores. Yes. People going out and and getting their exercise by walking the mall. Well, actually, um, a lot of them open early. Yeah. Um, so people, they do the mall walking. The mall walking. Well, mm-hmm. I bet it's a comfortable place to go. It's it a, is. It's when it's control. 130 degrees outside, that's where you go. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Yvonne Wakefield about her book, Suitcase Filled with Nails, her experience teaching in Kuwait. Yvonne, you went there, spent years teaching. Of what value was your teaching to the women who were your students? And uh, did you teach more than art? I think I taught by example, um, the reason I stayed there for six years was because of the students, because I saw how they were progressing in their work and their sense of self-discovery through their own artwork was exampled in the physical artwork and also you could see them evolve personally. Tell me one striking example, your favorite example of a student that made you proud as an art teacher. One particular student was totally, totally covered, which means she had the niqab and everything on. And by totally covered, she's dressed entirely in black with only eyeballs showing. Right. Okay. And she was in the studio, so she could take that off because no men were there, but she chose to, to work in it. And um, it was in a painting class, and we were doing a study of black and white. She couldn't use this example I was using because it had a face. So she got a canoe, and she did the value study of the canoe. Well, gradually over that semester, she would take off the niqab and then the hijab, and... Then she would just, she was really getting into her painting. And her final painting was of a woman's face looking out to the sea, and the hair was like waves. Freedom. And see, I went with no mission, no goal. I just went to teach art the way that I teach art. Yvonne Wakefield, author of Suitcase Filled with Nails. Fascinating experience, and thanks for sharing it in your book and by joining us today. Well, thank you, Rick. We have a link to Yvonne Wakefield's website with photos of her art from Kuwait. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Next on Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring an underappreciated part of Germany, the north, home to an inviting coastline, a seafaring history, and people with a uniquely dry wit. We're at 877-333-7425. When people go to Germany on vacation... They often favor the romantic scenes of fairy tale castles on the Rhine and the charming half timbered villages of Bavaria. And yet, the flatlands of the north were home to major events in history, and a good reason Germany is so dominant in Europe today. Joining us right now to coach us about the distinctions and highlights of northern Germany is Berlin based Fabian Ruger. Fabian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Fabian, when you think about Germany, you know, we, we, we know Bavaria is sort of the laid-back, romantic Germany, and we can think of the East and the West from the Cold War. Uh, how do you, as a German, distinguish the North, the South, the East, and the West of Germany? The North and the South can be best distinguished, of course, by that simple division between the Protestant and the Catholic history uh, in the course of the Thirty Years' War, and that's easy to remember. But, of course, it's not very simple line that cuts the country apart is sort of a fade-over zone between Catholicism and Protestantism. Catholicism still dominates the South and Protestantism most of the North and former East. And then there is the East-West division, which is, of course, best known in the 20th century with the Berlin Wall and the uh, divided Germany between communism uh, in the East and capitalism in the West. But it's interesting when you think about these fundamental shapers of a, of a region's outlook you go back to the Thirty Years' War. Now, that was ended in 1648, right? 17th century. Yes. And that gives you the Protestant in the North and the Catholic in the South divide. And even though Germany today isn't famous for going to church, you still have these sort of characteristics. How would you characterize the Protestant North, even if people wouldn't be going to church necessarily? What, how is that different than a Catholic South? 
first of all, there's all these cultural byproducts that come with these different strands of Christianity. So typical is, for instance, carnival, which you will not find in the Protestant North. Okay, so carnival carnival. is this social safety valve of craziness before Lent, which precedes Easter, (laughs) right? you got to have that let loose time in order to survive Lent. And that's a big deal in the Catholic world. So you find it in the South, but not the North. The North has now attempts at copying carnival. Just because they can have some fun and make some money? Because they want to have some fun too, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Berliners, for instance, who are, of course, very Protestant, claim now that they have one of the largest carnivals in the country, and by numbers of people participating, that might be true, but it's not the same as, say, the carnival in Cologne. Lutherans cannot party like (laughs) carnival people in Bavaria. I'm sorry, Berlin. (laughs) It's still interesting to watch. And then, uh, but in the north, you've got this Protestant, and is it just a sort of dour, practical Protestant work ethic, or, or how do you differ yes, the north from the south? With it, I think comes a very laid-back humor that's very tongue-in-cheek, and on occasion reminds you even of British humor. Uh, yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with the old seafaring history of northern Germany uh, with the Hanseatic League. That now that's a good towards. point because when I think of Germany, I'm like most Americans. We Americans occupied the southern part of Germany after World War II, so you know. Thousands of Americans lived there after the war. That's where we have our connections. We married into the South and, and so on. And uh, so we don't think of the North, but the North is really much more seafaring. What are the big seafaring cities? And, and tell us about the seafaring heritage of Germany. Hamburg and Bremen come immediately to mind, especially the small city of Lübeck, which is now a World Heritage Site. Lübeck was the center of the Hanseatic League, which, of course, is now forgotten. It officially dissolved in the 19th century, but for 400 years, between the roughly 1200s and 1600s, the Hanseatic League was an alliance of trading cities around the Baltic, which had trading stores as far west as London. Fabian, if I understand this correctly, I mean, you grew up with Hanseatic League lore, and it's, it's a foreign term to Americans, but we do hear this occasionally. My sense is, if you're a merchant and you want to trade, you have to have some sort of uh, free trade zone. Uh, It's good for business. And there was a fragmented world in the time of medieval Europe. It was feudalism. But the big trading cities could get together and have standards for free trade between themselves just so they could have a market and so they could have efficiency. Is that kind of the purpose of the Hanseatic League? The medieval kings couldn't really afford fleets to protect their merchants, so they had to do it themselves. And therefore, suddenly merchant fleets could become powerful political entities as well. And that was the reason why the King of England accepted the Hanseatic League into London. But the Hanseatic League was a group of cities, right? Yes. So it wasn't countries, it was cities, trading cities, that Mm -hmm. were sort of frustrated that there wasn't big countries where they could have free trade zones. Yes. It is, if you will, a precursor of the European Union. And in the North, you see a lot of this Hanseatic League heritage. Lubeck comes to mind, classic statuesque brick buildings, and it just says trade and hardworking medieval prosperity. Beautiful city, by the way. Wonderful to visit. And in architecture, very similar to some of the other cities of the Hanseatic League along the Baltic coast. Riga comes to mind. Yes. Stralsund. Yes. Beautiful. When you think about the north and the south, you talked about uh, sort of a different sense of humor. What other differences are there? I guess you should bring in a southerner to ask. <laughs> well, you can, there's no southerner here, so you can say whatever you want. Tell me um, the northern view uh, of uh, these stereotypes. Um, I think most Germans would probably agree that uh, southerners have sort of a deftier um, humor that's more, sort of more spot on. And the north is um, a little bit more laid back, less direct, tongue-in-cheek, more ironic than the south. In the south, they have a deft ear. What do you mean by that? Um... Let me just use the adjective meaty for it, as in meat. <laughs> meaty. <laughs> as a, a more a meatier humor. A meatier um, sense of humor. <laughs> more of a sort of bumpkins and bombastic kind of clownish sort of things, whereas I the Norths so, would be yes. a little more intellectual, a little more subtle, a little more wry. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good way to yeah. put it. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the differences within Germany, and we're joined by a northern German, Fabian Ruger, and uh, there's nobody to defend the South, so we're having a lot of fun here. <laughs> Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Gail's on the phone in Harwood Heights, Illinois. Gail, thanks for your call. Hi. you have a question or a, a sort of a travel dream you want to share with uh, Fabian? Uh, we visited quite a few cities in Germany, but I haven't been to Hamburg yet. Mm-hmm. 
and I keep seeing the miniature Wonderland <laughs> yes. on YouTube. That looks like it would really be interesting. What is that? Uh, it's like a museum of trains, and they show areas from all over the world. Have you been there, Fabian? No, but I've heard lots about it, the Germans. Especially the hamburgers are very proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> proud hamburgers. What else do you, Fabian, tell us about Hamburg. It's the second city in Germany, isn't it, after Berlin? Yes, and it's the largest port city in Germany. And so very wealthy. Very wealthy because of this, yes. Richest per capita city, leading port, and famous for its nightlife. Famous for the Reeperbahn. I mean, I guess harbor cities bring that along. It's sort of so a red So you got the harbor city, the red light district, the Amsterdam kind of craziness yeah. in Germany. The Beatles... Um, they lost their innocence yes, in Hamburg, uh, I think. one way to put it. <laughs> and also a lot of Broadway-style musicals. Yeah. So this is a, a lot going on culturally and nightlife in Hamburg. What is the fun you could have in, in the Reaper Bond that you could tell your friends about? Um, <laughs> you're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> well, what do you do as a tourist in the Reaper Bond? Well, you could walk around and take a look at... Um, is it one big was... red light district? Is it just prostitutes? Or is there, there must be more to it than that. No. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of prostitution there and uh, bars of that sort. Gail, what other questions do you have about the prostitutes? <laughs> <laughs> None about that, but I know that my grandparents took a ship over to the U.S. from Hamburg, mm-hmm. and I was wondering about doing some genealogical research there. Hamburg is really the jumping-off point for German emigration, I believe. Hamburg and Bremerhaven, yes. And from there, Gail could go out into the countryside. I, everybody knows, you know, the cute towns in the Rhine River and the Romantic Road and mm-hmm. Rotenburg under Tauber. In the north, what are the, what are the kings of cute? I think what most people don't or have forgotten is that the very northern part of Germany, which is now called Schleswig-Holstein, used to be a part of Denmark for centuries. And so the summer residence of the Danish kings is a castle at the uh, Plöner See, which is to the northeast of Hamburg, about an hour's drive or so. It's beautiful to see. You can take a nice walk along that beautiful uh, lake on the peninsula. Didn't the, the Brothers Grimm live and work in the north of... Uh, yeah. The Brothers Grimm, yes. Yeah, they, they were in the north of Germany. And there's uh, fairy tale towns up there, Hamlin. Mm-hmm, Hamlin, yes. Famous for um, the Pied Piper. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've been there, too. That was wonderful. Yeah. Gorgeous town. All right. Well, Gail, have a good time. Great, thank you. Thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fabian Ruger. We're talking about northern Germany. Jared's on the phone from White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Hey, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Now, you're in Minnesota. Are there many uh, Americans of German heritage in Minnesota? Oh, my gosh, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, you know, people a lot of times think of Minnesota, they think more Norwegians, but um, I think there are actually more German Americans that live in Minnesota than Scandinavian Americans. And I'm actually, I actually grew up in Wisconsin, and there you oh. I mean, just go to Milwaukee sometime, and you couldn't yeah. grow. I mean, Germans everywhere over there. And, you know, we're all kind of from the same area. We're all from that former Prussia, and you could even narrow it down further to, say, Pomerania. Mm-hmm. That, and, you know, my whole family, we're very interested in tracing our roots, tracing our family history, maybe even making some kind of connection to the, well, they'll call it the old country, but, I mean, I, I want to connect with it. Mm-hmm. the way it is today, not the way it was back then. Um, but there's a problem that most people who came from Pomerania find is that as soon as they find some kind of a trail in Pomerania, it dries up immediately. I mean, you may have a town where somebody came from, mm-hmm. but then you get back there and there's nothing. There's no records. You can't hardly find anything. Um, so I guess I have a two-part question. One, do you know of any place any way, any tips, any tricks for taking some of that research further in trying to trace your roots and where your family came from um, in that area, and then two, how somebody could, where somebody could go when they're there, if they're traveling, to really connect to the area, connect to the people, find out what's going on there now, and really kind of feel more of a more of a connection when you go back there as a German American. Mm-hmm. Um, most of Pomerania is in today's Poland. That's uh, one of the effects of the aftermath of uh, the two world wars. So 
the understandable reaction of most Poles directly after the war who were actually settled in these mostly German towns in Pomerania was, of course, to make these towns Polish now. Um, most of these Poles, by the way, were themselves pushed out, out of towns in the Ukraine uh, that were given to the Ukraine. So um, it's, it's a complicated move westwards, and some of that has really destroyed the records. So it's difficult in Pomerania in particular to get at all the heritage records. However, there are some you can find, for instance, in the German Federal Archives. So one way to go at this is, for instance, to look for the German Federal Archives, the Bundesarchiv, as it's called in Berlin, and try to pick up the trace there. Oh, great. So German Pomerania is now Polish Pomerania. It was victimized by this big, horrible movement of people during and after World War II. That makes it tough to look for your roots. Right. Yeah, and that's, you know, that, that's a lot of times what we find over there. And uh, some of my research has led me to believe at least that Pomerania itself was colonized and taken away from, like you said, you know, the Poles were pushed out to Ukraine. So mm-hmm. I mean, it can, it's, it's kind of like it's one of those things I can't, I can't really blame the poles for taking it back so forcefully, <laughs> feeling yes. like they got forced out in the first place. Yeah. But at the same time, now yeah. you know there's there's a lot of. I mean, there are a lot of us who now feel like we have less of a connection to the home country, huh. even though we still feel like we are very as much a German as American. I mean, at least as much as we can be in you know 100 or 150 years since mm-hmm. our family has been here. I never thought about that. The loss of a heritage connection that American Germans would have because of this movement of peoples in Pomerania, Poland, Germany, Ukraine, and so on. Jared, thanks for your call. All right, thanks a lot. Yeah. Yep. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Fabian Ruger, and Fabian is a Berliner, and we're talking about uh, the north part of Germany and the differences between the north and the rest of Germany. Fabian, we know Germany from the almost clichetic aspects of Bavarian culture. How would the north strike us differently? Do you still have the, the fun in the beer halls? Do you still have the dirndls? Do you still have the big pretzels? Right. Th- these things, you know, that's the South. Um, Northern Germany is flat. Think seafaring. Think flat country. Think lakes. Um, think very good bicycling paths. If you're into, into, you know, taking your bicycle, mm-hmm. you don't have to go a lot of uphill and downhill. <laughs> and, uh, you know, lots of agriculture and, uh, yeah, some beautiful small towns and villages. I hear people raving about beaches and islands as a, as a vacation uh, getaway. Talk about the beaches and the islands in the north of Germany. The Baltic Sea, especially, was often called a Berlin's bathtub because Berliners, especially in the 1920s, would have their little, you know, house by the sea, their, their weekend mansion, and uh, would go to the Baltic coast. Of course, in the East German communist times, most of the Baltic coast fell into disarray, but now you can go again, and it's wonderful, and they're fantastic. So when you think about the East and the West of Germany, of course, because of the economic situation, the East fell way behind the West, and now it's been a generation since the wall fell, and there's been a real concerted effort on the part of the West to bolster up, to lift up the East and to buy an infrastructure in the East that's the equal of the West. I think the East, it's fair to say, has, from an infrastructure point of view, it is the equal of the West. How is the economy in the East compared to the West now? Well, it's doing well at the coast, precisely because Berlin wanted its bathtub bag as soon Ah, as the wall fell. Okay, so the Northeast is doing quite well. The Northeast at the coast is doing fairly well because of tourism. But if you go inland, it's doing not so well, simply because the jobs are mostly still in the West and people go there. So young generations still leave the East. There are some beautiful villages in East Germany that are really lacking inhabitants these days. A challenge for travelers is to somehow connect with local people to get a better understanding of that culture and that society. Fabian, if I was in northern Germany and I wanted to have one afternoon of fun with locals, and let's say I was your guest, what would you do with me? Where would you take me? What would I experience to gain a lifelong memory of traveling in northern Germany? I guess the northern German would take you to the local bar (laughs) and uh, have you try different sorts of schnapps, for instance. Different schnapps? Different schnapps. And what schnapps would you have me try? Um, you know, different Obstbrände. Is that Obstbrände is a, is a, you know, like a Williams peach schnapps. Okay, yeah. Yeah, those are fairly popular in uh, Lower Saxony. And, and would they, be, they would be regional, proud of one region over another. Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, I just spent a week in the summer in a little village, and they had their own, they had their own little uh, schnapps, which they were 
proud of. It it didn't have the most appealing name, I should say, but what uh, was the it, name? It, 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 if I remember, it, it had something to do with uh, horses and um, the byproducts that come with them. Ah, I know, um, the, I know the snaps well. <laughs> <laughs> but it, um, besides the entertaining name, it was actually tasty. You know, Fabian, talking with you, it's a little bit like uh, the difference between talking to a Bavarian and a and a person from northern Germany. You're a little more thoughtful. You're a little less bombastic. <laughs> but you still want to take me out to a nice meal at the very end, okay? Where would we go and uh, what would we drink? We would go to a great fish restaurant where we'd have both North Sea fish and Baltic Sea fish. Yeah, and what kind of vegetables would come with it? Um, asparagus in the summer. White asparagus? White asparagus in the summer. That's a big deal in Germany. Oh, very big, especially in the north. It grows there. Okay, um, so they... we're eating local. <laughs> yeah. And what would we drink? We would finish off with a coffee and a great schnapps. What kind of schnapps? A fruit schnapps, an Obstbrand, um, from pear or peach. And would I sniff it and sip it? You would sniff it and then quickly throw it down. Throw it down? Mm-hmm. So you can have another one before it hits you. All right. And then how would you finish? Give me a toast to finish off our discussion. You would say, Prost. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the shortest finish of our discussion I've ever heard, but I guess that fits with Northern Germany. Prost. Thank you very much, Fabian. Thank you. I guess I should say Dankeschön. Dankeschön. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York and for production help to Kate Mulhern-Graham, Rhonda Pelican, and Chris Luzik. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, including a link to Patricia Schultz describing one of her favorite market scenes on the outskirts of Rio. And you can sign up to be notified of our next recording sessions when you can join in as a caller on the show. It's all behind the radio tab at ricksteves.com. And we'll see you next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.